The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. A very warm welcome to a special Friday edition of Scorebox. Let me tell you, we've got Villa Marks at Downing Street. We've got Karen Cho with me, Steve Cedric in London. And a special, special treat, Jeff Cutmore in St. Petersburg. These are your headlines. Uh, the Dow rallies for its fourth straight day amid signs of progress in US-Mexico trade talks as Washington's tariff deadline looms. Wall Street awaiting the US jobs report with the ECB pushing out a rate hike, joining a chorus of central banks warning about global uncertainty. Monetary policy is non-conventional, that we are far away from normalization. We are far away from normalization because the rest of the world and the rest of the challenges are far away from being normal. The race to become leader of the UK Conservative Party heats up as Prime Minister Theresa May prepares to step down. The head of Deutsche Bank's investment bank becomes the target of a tax investigation as Cologne prosecutors launch a criminal probe into current and former employees of the struggling German lender. $20 billion worth of business deals signed here in Russia as both President Xi and Putin try to project a united front to Washington. Good morning, everybody. Um, I've had a lovely invitation from the gallery, which I don't normally get. Good morning to you, Karen. Good morning. So, so have a look at Sanofi if you want to. Normally, we get commands sent down to right. us, don't we, Karen? I mean, it Breaking must be Friday because they're feeling very relaxed in the gallery. Their feet are up. They're wearing so, Hawaiian shirts. They've got sandals sure, on. So shall we just and that's on? just Adam, the director. Uh, do, we, do we do it or not now? Do what we like. We talk <laughs> live. Do what we like. How are you? Good. 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 Do you have a good Thursday? Yeah, not bad. Should yeah. we get some cocktails around the yeah, Absolutely. Long yeah, Island Now, that would be the show that I wanted to design cocktails at 6 a.m. Good morning, everybody. Let's have a look at Sanofi. Uh, year to date, the shares are down nine tenths of one percent. Uh, it's been an oscillating, downbeat performance in many ways. The range over the last 52 weeks on Sanofi shares, 64.87, uh, up to 80 uh, per share for the Paris-listed company. I can tell you that the brokers like it by and large. There's some strong buyers out there. Seven buyers, six holders, 11 trades on 12 times forward, so way below uh, the broader sector. What have they done? Well, let's have a look. They've appointed Paul Hudson as the chief executive officer to succeed Olivier uh, Brandicourt, who has decided to retire. Uh, as I say, the shares have been pretty underwhelming compared with some peers trading at only 12 and a half times forward. Right. Uh, let us move on. One of our big headline stories, the US and Mexico apparently showed some signs of progress in border talks uh, over security yesterday ahead of Trump's Monday deadline to impose a 5% tariff on all Mexican imports. Negotiations are set to continue today after Mexico proposed a uh, proposed putting troops along the southern border, their side of the border. Now, speaking after the discussions, the Vice President Mike Pence reaffirmed the Monday deadline, but sounded an optimistic tone over the prospect of a deal. 
We're encouraged that, uh, frankly, the Mexican delegation brought even more proposals today. Uh, but uh, I'll be talking to the president later tonight over the course of this weekend about what's being proposed. But uh, the American people can be confident. And while we continue to advance policies like the USMCA, we'll continue to drive forward policies for infrastructure legislation, all the kinds of things that will continue to support a growing American economy. This president has no higher priority than ending the crisis of illegal immigration that is flooding our southern border. Investors continue to eye closely the trade conversations from Mexico to China, and there's still an element of nerves in the backdrop. But what's compensating for that has been the seismic shift, as it's been described by the Fed this week, the willingness for the Fed to now respond to some of these global trade issues. And that has propelled markets forward again in session. We saw more gains for the Dow. It is the fourth day of winning numbers we've seen on the boards, a winning streak that we've not seen since March. So the amount of green ink uh, certainly noted by many market participants, slightly less on the S&P and the NASDAQ, the third straight positive session playing out there. When it comes to what investors are buying, you, you see these decent percentage numbers. Some of it has really been concentrated around the defensive part of the market. Real estate utilities both hit record closes in session yesterday. Another prop coming to this market uh, that wasn't a feature earlier in the week was energy, real recovery taking place in that sector. And materials, though, leading across the course of the week on pace for its best trading week since 2011. So a number of is uh, passing between before we've seen the sort of levels that we've had in terms of uh, gains for the week on materials. But let me just dive into that energy story to, to see what's taking place. We've had some terrific conversations about the demand side simply collapsing this week. You've seen a three-day move. It was about 12% of the downside that you had in WTI. Investors weighed up the inventory picture as well and, and also what OPEC is doing, the backdrop. And Hans Redeker yesterday from Morgan Stanley was saying to us, you've seen fairly tight supplies, but uh, the drop in the price really very much around the, the global trade story and demand just disappearing for some investors. And you can see uh, the extent of the falls on this curve here. For the three months, we're down 5%. But morning session, we are clawing back some of those losses. We're trading up by about 1.4% roughly on both of these levels on the price. Let's get to Asia and the markets there as they look to close out the Friday and what has been a, a fairly furious week on tweets, on geopolitics, on tariffs. And the early picture is still positive, and this goes to the story around whether we're now seeing a little bit of reversal too on the US dollar, given the slightly dovish tone that we've had on markets. So the Nikkei gaining, we're six tenths firmer. The Cosby's up four tenths, seven tenths on Australian. The Nifty, you can see, is putting on two tenths of a percent. The big feature, though, today will come from the US, and this is on the jobs report. The market very much watching this. It will happen later on after the Asian markets are shut. It'll be relevant for the European markets and for the US markets today. We are watching 180,000 jobs to be created in the latest month. The unemployment rate at 3.6%, average hourly earnings up 0.3 uh, of a percent. However, enormous downside risk is out there. We had a very, very weak ADP report. Many analysts have not changed their assumptions around this payrolls report, given sometimes there can be a tenuous link between the two numbers. However, the market is just a little bit tentative about what this wages report could look like. Markets here in Europe are chasing green, very much like that Wall Street action. The question is whether we get a bad payrolls report, but the bad news is good news for markets because everybody starts cheering that the Fed is well and truly away getting justification for a rate cut. 
or whether the numbers surprised. And in fact, the unemployment numbers uh, and uh, employment levels hold up. You asked the, the key question straight away. You've nailed it. But I have an answer for you. Right. This time round, I know the answer. For What's once, answer? I know the answer. The answer is it goes up. The market Regardless. goes up. Yeah, I can tell you now. You might as well just buy the market. I don't normally <laughs> give investment advice. But here we go. It goes up. And I'll, clearly, I'm not giving investment advice. I'm, I'm being sarcastic as ever. Because the point is, when we had appalling ADP data the other day, only 27,000 private sector jobs created, the market surged because they thought there was going to be a rate hike. Then we saw, hang on a second, in the both ISM series, manufacturing and non-manufacturing, the employment component of that uh, was pretty good. But the market was still going up. And then yesterday, we had the weekly jobless claims, which were absolutely great. And if anyone who didn't look at them, I'll just remind the weekly jobless claims figures. Here we go. Uh, unchanged at 218,000, near the 215,000 consensus, but the four-week average fell. Mm. Fell. So there were less people claiming jobs, down to 215,000. So good, bad, indifferent data. I think we've had various series of this week as well. And the market has gone up regardless. It's just in that mood. That's just where the positioning is. Maybe it goes down today just for an utterly random reason. But the fact of the matter is, good or bad, the market's been going up. A drop in the employment numbers would be, in a sense, clearer for markets, I think, because it would give you the sense that there is a slowdown happening. It's starting to reach into a lot of corners of the economy. Mm. A firmer number is where I think some of the confusion has been. I've seen a number of guests just looking at each other, thinking, I think your positioning's wrong, you're too bearish, yeah. or you're too optimistic. And that point where there is a difference is because the employment levels are still strong. You've had, you know, effectively a, a skill shortage taking place in the States. Invest, investors are seeing that there's no capex going on, yet employers are still looking for jobs, uh, looking for workers to pull into the job force. So they're saying, well, how weak is this economy and just how much room can the Fed have to manoeuvre to cut on the downside mm. if you do get a resolution in trade? And I think a weaker number in some ways might be more welcome for the market on the jobs yeah, because of that clearer picture. And I think there'll be a very good column coming out next Tuesday in City AM where you'll be pointing <laughs> out a lot of the very interesting and bearish comments from Morgan Stanley's hands mm -hmm. right across yesterday. It will be. Yeah, very good. Have you written it yet? It's about three quarters done. Yeah, normally my guess on Monday morning. You're very clever. OK, good morning. Right, OK, now, New York Fed President John Williams has told CNBC he still expects the US economy to continue to grow above trend, above trend, and for inflation to move towards the 2% mark. So why the rate cut talk? Addressing recent market worries, Williams said the inverted yield curve is not, quote, an oracle. Oh, I like that quote. Uh, but acknowledged increased uncertainty to the outlook. There is a, I, some more concern about, especially around the trade issues and some of uh, the broader <coughs> geopolitical issues, and then how that spills into the global economic outlook. You can see uh, that uh, mood out there, and that I think translates into people's concerns or worries about the economic outlook, which then affects their views on policy. Doesn't mean I have to agree or disagree. It's just a perspective that I, I can understand, given the concerns I hear people have about you know, the risks or uncertainty around the outlook. Meanwhile, the European Central Bank followed the Fed in signalling it was ready to cut rates if needed. What are European rates? Oh, yeah, they're nothing. Uh, the ECB, because they've got all that in, in, in store, like the Fed has, yeah? Anyway, the ECB ruled out hiking rates until at least the first half of next year and opened the door to further stimulus if trade tensions and Brexit hit the Eurozone's economy. Now we say that our monetary policy is non-conventional, that we are far away from normalization. We are far away from normalization because the rest of the world and the rest of the challenges are far away from being normal. 
And it's been like that now for many, many, many years, following first the great financial crisis, then the sovereign debt crisis, then the Greek crisis, and now we have the... Uh, the threat of um, rising protectionism, the geopolitical um, dangerous uh, threats that we see we see every day. We have uh, developments in um, in the eurozone itself that warrant this. Mario Draghi, then not as dovish as some thought he might have been yesterday. Let's get to Jeffrey Taylor, co-founder and managing director at Digital Risk. Jeffrey, good to have you on board with us today. I want to pick up on a conversation we were having yesterday with Hans Redeker from Morgan Stanley, effectively saying the market is wrong this week to be buying that the liquidity that's now promised from the Fed is not the right response at this point because what we have is a, a global trade slowdown that is taking place. What do you make of the market action? Do you think that the market is right to buy on hopes that there might be more rate cuts from the Fed? Good morning. Thank you very much for having me. If you would have asked me three months ago if there was a chance that we would be having rate cuts this year in the U.S., I would say absolutely not. Now, as I look at the, the situation, it's, it's somewhat unprecedented, but you're looking at probably at least maybe 50 basis points to 100 basis points rate cuts based on uh, geopolitical issues versus the incredibly strong economy that the U.S. has right now, with which with uh, wage growth at the best, it's been over a decade for the middle class and unemployment around 4%. So tell us, what are you expecting from the jobs report, the 185,000, uh, 180,000 roughly pencil into some market estimates? Do you think this is going to be a number that moves the market? Are we going to get anywhere close to it after we had a very weak private payrolls report this week? So look for, look, I'm looking for it to be a little bit bigger. Do I think it's going to really move the equities markets? I'm not sure on that. But I will tell you one thing that I now look forward to in the next six months is the U.S. housing market particularly. This is going to be the lowest mortgage rates that we've had in about 24 months. And you have had consistent wage growth, especially in that middle class, for people who have been thinking about buying a house for the last couple of years and maybe haven't done it. You have this great dynamic where they're going to feel very good about their, their current job last, for now and for the last couple of years. All of a sudden, with mortgage rates down uh, almost the entire uh, point, potentially, the affordability factor is going to kick in, and they're going to be looking potentially to have that move up home buyer. The first time home buyer might finally get into the market. So I think there's a lot of positives could happen in the housing market with what's going on right now. Come on, Jeffrey. No one's had any problem borrowing any money up to date as well. People are getting money chucked to them. Look at the auto loans this week. Look at the average loan on a new car stateside, 32187 bucks. On a used car, 20137 bucks. We're already at record levels. Why do we need cheap money thrown at us, Jeffrey? We don't need cheap money thrown at us. And look at every indicator that we looked at historically. We're talking about all-time low unemployment rates. We're talking about wage growth that we haven't seen in decades. All the typical parameters that we're looking at would say there's no way that you would go ahead and have uh, an interest rate hike right, uh, a cut right now in the U.S. That being said, what's going on globally with, uh, with China and with Mexico is now looks like it's going to be driving about a 50 to 100 basis points uh, decrease this year. I agree. I would never have predicted this six months ago, but that looks to be the reality that we're in right now. So it's going to happen, and those who are going to be, are going to be beneficiaries of that, especially when I'm focused on the housing market, could be those who are looking to get into the houses for the first time or in the move-up buyers.
Do you know, wouldn't it be great, though, that if instead of monetary response globally, we could have a really great fiscal response? Oh, hang on a second. We've already had a fiscal response when it wasn't needed in the United States. Has, has the government in the, in the US wasted uh, fiscal incentives when they weren't needed, actually, so they haven't got any bang for their buck, they haven't got any ammo when it will be needed? So, so obviously, look, timing in these things is very difficult to predict. So if you look over the last 10 years, right, we didn't raise rates in 13, 14, and 15. And by all other economic indicators, we were doing very well. Then the Fed obviously raised them right now. It's, it's one of those things that it, it, timing is always extremely hard to get. Right now, though, it does look like the interest rate, it's almost a foregone conclusion that it's going to happen. Uh, will it create the stimulus that we need for the broader economy? The economy appears to be on very solid footing. But again, if I come back to the areas where I think there are going to be some, uh, um, some benefits, it's going to be um, in the housing market. Contrary, I look at the builder's face right now, and I see them, uh, if I'm a builder, why am I going to build a $200,000 house versus a $400,000 house? Many of those same factors that are driving interest rates down are also driving my supply to build houses are going to be up. It's going to be more expensive for me. I'm going to have to move into a $300,000, $350,000 house uh, to build versus a 250000 house. So those are sort of the trade-offs. Yeah, I, I like your logic. Thank you very much indeed for joining us, Jeffrey. Really, really good to hear from you, sir. Jeffrey Taylor, co-founder and managing director at Digital Risk. Well, uh, up next, we're going to hear from the CEO of the Russian telecom firm MTS on their latest deal with Huawei. And, Karen? If you just can't get enough of Squawk Box, be sure to tune in for our very own podcast. Head to cnbc.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts to have a listen and download today's episode. For our listeners out there, stick around for some more. China and Russia have signed over $20 billion worth of deals in the energy and tech sectors as President Xi Jinping continues his visit to St. Petersburg. Beijing is aiming to boost trade ties with Russia to a new record level amid protracted trade tensions with the United States. Business leaders expressed their concerns over the long-term impact of the trade war to CNBC in St. Petersburg. You had people who were very strong supporters in 2016 of Donald Trump who were farmers who are now quite concerned. The risk is that this goes beyond just being a trade dispute and it becomes a new clash of systems. And that is, I think, worrying for uh, a well-functioning global economy. The U.S. has put uh, in place a set of uh, ideas that they would like the Chinese to embrace, which China is simply unable, unable to embrace. Up to now, China has been quite measured in its response. The U.S. has been sort of irresponsible and the Chinese have been more responsible and taking the high ground and the moral high ground, etc. I would say that's true up to now. The issue is not the trade deficit. The issue is much more, much bigger uh, from, from, from the rhetoric that we see. And as I see it is uh, the moment that this competition started, uh, U.S. businesses, U.S. companies, uh, you know, really got worried about this. What is next? What we should do? And crisis in WTO discussion. Since to, uh, Doha around 2001, what was delivered by WTO is just the trade facilitation agreement, nothing else, in spite of all attempts to, to facilitate trade agenda. We probably need to come back to the negotiation table. 
Uh, meanwhile, Russian telecom company MTS has reached a deal with Huawei to develop 5G networks in the country over the coming years. Uh, Jeff, it's very interesting, uh, and you are covering all things Russia from the St. Petersburg International Economic Forum, where you had a fantastic panel yesterday here. Um, but the fact of the matter is, in the West, we always think, oh, yeah, the Russians and the Chinese, they both come from a socialist background, hence they must be allies. But they're not necessarily historically. So I'm just wondering if the same Western concerns over 5G and Huawei are shared by some in Russia, despite the fact that there's huge rapport continues between the Russians and the Chinese. And that is a terrific question, Steve, and I've got just the man to answer it. So why don't I just duck that one and I will pass it on to Alexei Konya. He is the CEO of MTS and he's the man who had to sign that deal with Huawei. Good to see you this morning, sir. Good morning. So my colleague in the studio is raising questions about security. So let me perhaps just start off with that. The West is making the case that Huawei is a dangerous company to buy technology from, but you don't seem concerned. Well, I think uh, every country has its own um, right and uh, capabilities uh, to identify whether that or different type of the equipment represent uh, certain concerns. Um, so in uh, this sense, uh, Huawei equipment is fully qualified to be in our networks as well as, uh, you know, in more than 100 countries right now globally in the world. And it seems like every country who decided on Huawei being a part of their network, uh, they, they seem to uh, be okay in terms of uh, security it provides uh, on the network. So the Americans have got it wrong. They don't know what Everyone, they're talking about. I don't know. Here is no wrong or right. Every, every decides for himself. Uh, my my uh, thinking is just uh, you need to follow certain rules, principles, and uh, every country decides for itself. What is, what is maybe more worrying is that certain decisions is uh, you can break the supply chains which exist right now globally. And this is already where, you know, where the concern can be raised. Obviously, a lot of people watching this from the United States will look at that deal and they'll say this is a provocative signature. This was deliberately done to sort of poke us in the eye. Can I ask you, were you put under any pressure to actually sign this deal at this St. Petersburg event? No, no, absolutely no, because uh, we work uh, with uh, all vendors. We work with Huawei, we work with Ericsson, we signed the deal on uh, 5G development uh, with Ericsson even earlier in uh, Barcelona World Mobile Congress. So we're piloting uh, 5G technology with them as well. And we also have a close cooperation uh, with Nokia. So all three major vendors are presented uh, in our network and uh, we are working with all of them. So in Huawei is uh, one of the leading, if not the leading company in terms of technology in network equipment. So we, of course, work with them as well. And, and that's the interesting thing, that you're actually talking to a lot of vendors, and this is an MOU rather than a hard deal at this stage. So it's possible that maybe you have more or less of their equipment. So let me ask you, is there any concern at all from your part that if you take a lot of their equipment, you end up being locked into the idea of a Chinese 5G structure 
that maybe is incompatible with some Ericsson or Nokia technology? Well, look, we are not looking at this uh, as a Chinese, US, Swedish or whatsoever. So we're away from geopolitics in your economical thinking, on your business thinking. You always balance between vendors and you don't want to fall, fall uh, into dependency from one vendor. So you also need, you always need to have a strategy how you substitute if vendors starts, uh, you know, taking too much margin out of your business. So that's the question always of the balance and trade-off and competition which you need to have uh, between vendors. You're this a, is how we view this situation. You're a company that's slap bang in the middle of this uh, technology debate that's taking place, largely forced, I think, by Washington at this stage. Do companies in Russia have to choose between a Chinese system and a Western system? So far, uh, we, we don't see because they are uh, integrated, those systems, so they work together. Uh, you buy uh, Chinese handsets and you have uh, Google Maps or YouTube uh, as a part of this ecosystem. So it might be that we are seeing uh, a division where, you know, the two ecosystems will go separately. Uh, which I'm not sure is a benefit for global economy and for productivity and for technological progress. However, uh, so far, so good, we saw a very good uh, symbiosis of, uh, you know, of uh, technology on one side and on that side, and we're using benefits of, uh, you know, of the whole world. Just one more question before I let you go. Uh, earlier this year, you paid an $800 million fine to the Americans over an issue in Uzbekistan that had nothing to do with the Americans, as far as I could tell. And yet you accepted the fine and you paid it. Why did you pay that fine? Look, uh, we, we decided that in the best interest of the company uh, to settle and uh, you know, move on. And uh, these are the things which you want uh, to leave behind and go on. Uh, we just uh, want uh, to reiterate uh, that uh, MTS uh, stands for the best corporate governance standards uh, and ethical standards and will continue to be focused on, uh, that, uh, uh, on those standards. Alexei, we've got to wrap it up, but nice to talk with you. Thank you so much. And so many more other topics like your fintech business and your media business. We'll have to save them for another day. Yeah, that's interesting that no one is interested in results, which are very strong and good for MTS. Well, you shouldn't, <laughs> you shouldn't sign an MOU with Huawei at the uh, second day of the St. Petersburg Forum. We'll see you next time. Thanks Thank so you. much for that. Uh, guys, let me send it back to you in the studio. I just love the way Definitely. bosses around, those Russian bosses. You shouldn't have done that. I, I do feel he's paying. This is what happens, because every time yeah. something with Huawei yeah. breaks, it becomes the number one item when you're talking to all the telecommunications Well, when bosses. I'm doing monuments tours of London, he'll be chief communications officer of some massive Russian corporate. Right, yeah. right. <laughs> In our afterlife. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show weekdays on CNBC.